Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Mark. It's such an honor uh, to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So I would like to ask you first, how, how you'd like to define yourself and be, maybe for the audience for maybe first time listening to you? Yeah. Um, yeah, I describe myself as a material scientist. I'm especially interested or fascinated by living things um, and the kinds of materials that these organisms build. Um, I have a very a great passion for... Um, proteins and protein materials because these are the main building blocks of life. Um, we study spider webs a lot. Um, we are very very interested in um, active materials actually derived from from spider silk and other materials yeah. like this. Um, and so yeah, so I would describe myself as a biological material scientist. That would be interesting. So we ask each guest about, about their childhood. This is an initial question about your childhood. How was your childhood world? Do you have any memories about your childhood? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, well, so, um, you know, I remember being uh, being very interested in uh, in building stuff. Um, and I think your um, the, the quote you put in there is something um, of robotics and whether I had any relationship with robots in my childhood. But so I didn't really build robots myself uh, when I grew up. Um, um, but um, but my kids are building robots actually. So, so it's become, I think, a lot more popular nowadays to do that. But yeah, I, I was more interested, I think, in, I was more interested in electronics and, and writing code. I remember, um, you know, taking apart computers. I grew up in, um, uh, at the time when and, and folks had the first computers at home, you know, home computers, <laughs> personal computers. Um, I had a PC at the time and then um, uh, one of those old Commodore computers, C64. Um, and I, and I, you know, kind of, I took them apart and I built, I built my own um, little microcontrollers and, and computer um, controllers. Um, one of the things I've done when I was a child is I created um, kind of, kind of a, a smart home system. We had a, we had solar panels on the roof that we installed, and I, I created um, a little control system to basically um, control the temperature in the house and controlling the flow of the of the um, uh, the, the hot water from the solar panels versus being using a, uh, a heater. Um, and so I built the electronics for that. And I remember, um, so this is kind of like the early days of a smart home, if you wish. Um, and I, and I enjoyed, um, kind of learning from how, uh, computers were built and then building my own. I remember, um, you know, creating my own PCB boards, um, you know, creating the, the actual, um, electronics platform, um, etching it in my, in my, in my kitchen, in my parents' kitchen. Um, and, and kind of um, you know going through the whole process of of soldering the electronics and then and then building it. So that was sort of what I did when I was a child. Um, and I also always enjoyed coding and write, writing code, which I still do to this day. Of course, I've always worked with computers in that in that way. Um, and I uh, and I think that uh, that passion of of working with computers and really being fascinated by them is still something I, I enjoy doing today. And I'm very glad that in my job I, I have the opportunity to do that every day um, and also work with you know amazing students and postdocs in my group to to kind of push new directions and, and how we use computers and modeling materials interesting interesting so maybe there's a question we could ask about um, when it comes to soft system or soft materials what could be the inspiration you mentioned proteins and the building the main building block for the life and also by the web so if you can tell us about the inspiration when you look to this kind of yeah examples what kind of questions or maybe something is still hard for you to figure out well in your work yeah 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 well there are many i mean fortunately there are many there are many things we don't know yet about um really how living living organisms which are the ultimate robots i guess the ultimate uh, kind of soft robots or maybe others but um uh, in nature and, and you know one of the one of the questions that's um you know wi widely known of course is the question of, of protein folding you know how um, you know, biological organisms actually, um, you know, create materials from the DNA sequence and how these proteins actually are uh, put together in a, in a functional material. And I, I say this, you know, there's a lot of work, of course, going on in, in, in genetic analyses. Mm -hmm. It's very complicated, but 
um, and also of course in DNA sequences and comparing those. But but the really the interesting question for us in the materials community a lot of times is how do you go from that genetic that gene or that that upregulation of that gene to making actually something like spider silk or making something like bone and how is it operated you know how is it repaired how is it constructed and, and so on and and th those are some really really fundamental questions um from a scientific perspective also technologically right so if you're in the business of creating biomaterials um you you want to be able to um, perhaps um you know design a new biomaterial that can treat a disease or maybe serve as an implant in your body you know create new tissues um and the the question of how you how you design the protein sequences one and how do you make it and how do you make it so that it's compatible with the body that is really a big challenge so when you think about um robotics or autonomous systems um, we want to build an intelligence into these and want to be able to have materials and systems that can respond and that can change shape, that can actuate, um, that can work in concert with all the other things going on in your body. And the, the building of these is very challenging, right? You know, it's not just, not just the sequence or a single protein. It's millions, billions more, uh, different, sometimes the same protein, sometimes different proteins coming together and forming, you know, really complex uh, composites, really, um, and systems that operate um, as something like a like like an intelligent uh, architecture, uh, and that's a that's a big challenge to predict that. So, if you wanted to say, um, you know, I want to have a code that um, where I punch in what I want, like I want to have a certain like hard tissue, and I want to be able to have certain stiffnesses, and maybe have certain actuation properties. Um, you know, design that, and and how do you make that? Right, sort of pushing a button and letting computers optimize this, and having a, maybe a three D printer make the material, or having cells make the material using synthetic biology. That's the dream, of course, but I'm very far away from this. But I think, you know, we're all working towards that goal. Yeah, that's very interesting. So I'm curious to ask you when it comes to designing the material, if you have this kind of aspiration or goals to have this kind of features, what do you think maybe still maybe direction we have to go for? It's like understanding or, get, or coming up with models. So how, how do you see maybe, yeah, we can reach that goal. Yes. So um, I, I think that computational models are going to play a really, really important role. Um, and that's simply because it's to experimentally only, uh, you know, investigate and try trial and error, basically, um, it's not going to work because there's so many different combinations. Like you think about proteins, you think about, you know, biomaterials or even hydrogels. Um, you're going to have a lot of different possibilities in how you make that material and how you put the different constituents together. Um, you just know we're not going to have enough time to actually explore all the different possibilities. So we need uh, we need mechanistic models. So we need to understand using maybe theory or analytical methods to understand what are the mechanisms driving these processes. And then we need computational models that can help us to using big data techniques or machine learning techniques to go through a lot of different possibilities and combinations, like a lot of different design suggestions and then screen those that are most promising. And those we can make in the lab, right? So, so making a yeah, protein in the lab is expensive, takes a lot of time, could take weeks, months to do that. Um, and it takes a lot of engineering on its own to do that. Um, so, so we wanna save that time and, and only make those proteins or make those you know, biomaterials that are most relevant and most promising. And then so computation is gonna be important. Analytical models, mechanistic models are very important. So in other words, I'm not a big fan of just you know, farming out essentially um, getting a solution to a computer, I want to know how the computer actually got the solution, right? And, and what is going on mechanistically. And that's where I think machine learning can be very helpful, um, especially interpretive machine learning techniques, which allow us to kind of look inside the models and not see them as just um, a black box that's just operating, but actually look inside of it and see, okay, how does this model detect certain images or features? Um, how do how do certain structures how are they generated how are patterns generated in a machine learning model and and yeah that can work really well actually and I think in the in the current community in the current tradition of how computer science is evolving uh, these types of questions are becoming increasingly important um, rightfully so and and I think there's a enormous opportunity for physical scientists uh, like like this community I think community in your your podcast and community broadly in engineering and science where really um we love our equations and we love our our, our physics and chemistry and and you know the fundamentals behind mathematics um and so it's not just about data 
it's it's also about how you get the data and how you interpret the data and so we need those models those physical models that we have for that and so our job actually um you know is enriched by having another dimension by working with data um and help us to help us along but we are going to be unique i think in that community in that we are able to have we have a really rich set of history of physical laws that we can draw upon and, and use in this, in this approach. So it's, it's a very exciting time, I think, where these things are coming together. That's a very interesting point. I'm curious to ask you in that case, when it comes to design process, do you think that you have to go exactly as what we have already in, like, for the protein example or the sequences, do you have to go exactly the same structure or you have to go for something maybe evolving yeah, beyond yeah. what we have already? No, uh, yeah, that's a great point. Great point. No, I think we, <clears throat> I mean, it's nice to study what nature has created, um, and that's a great reference point. But no, absolutely, you're right. I mean, we we want to push the boundary to create things that nature hasn't actually created yet. So we um, we want to go beyond that, and and that's particularly true when we're creating, yeah, maybe synthetic life forms or maybe synthetic robots or, or systems that can autonomously respond and have intelligence built in. Um, there there might be some patterns and some features of design that might be inspired by nature but of course uh, we want to push beyond that envelope that evolution has put us into and um and that's where computers are very useful right we can simulate evolutionary mechanisms using genetic algorithm for example and there's uh, you know a lot of opportunities actually to um, invent things that are better than nature and the reason is sim simple actually that um, nature a lot of times evolutionary mechanisms only um, optimize uh, to for a species to survive essentially and um, in addition there are many constraints right that an organism might be under right so uh, a spider um, you know might have a certain type of ecosystem that the spider might live in um, and it doesn't have certain chemicals available or certain temperature ranges available to process the materials um, now as humans as engineers we can go beyond these you know we can feed um, you know our three-dimensional uh, construction of a, of a system um, we can feed um, chemicals that nature has never utilized, you know, nanotubes or graphene, perhaps, or um, maybe new kinds of 2D materials. Um, there's a whole bunch of, of course, new inventions coming online. And uh, we can utilize those and mix those with the kinds of patterns that nature has used and maybe simulate evolutionary mechanisms through genetic approaches, genetic algorithms, um, machine learning, find the right patterns. And yeah, we can very easily, I think, um, you know, beyond, go beyond what nature has created and thereby create some technologies that are actually better than nature, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Interesting, yeah. So I'm curious to ask you about, I think that's a question we have in the community about how we can have a, the design of the sensing uh, e efficiently in the material. And we have some material already that could work as actuator and the sensor at the same time. Right. However, there's a limitation or trade-offs in the design. Mm -hmm. So when you look for that, embedding the sensing in the material or what kind of the trade-offs you can really avoid yes. maybe even when they have the tools like you mentioned still there's a trade-off yeah no i mean that's a great question i i'm probably uh, you know i i i i look a little bit further ahead i think in this in this area than uh um, and that's because I, I don't build robots myself right now i I'm, i build models of materials and, and actuators and so on and sensors but in my view, um, the, uh, the the future of this field probably relies on not only building the material and building in, you know, simple control mechanisms that have actuation and responses, but but actually building an in, in intelligence. And so you could do that in different ways. You can do this by, um, you know, using a computer chip. I described earlier when I was a child, I was you know creating simple uh, control systems, you know, as much as I could uh, to, to regulate the temperature in the house and using the solar energy efficiently. A very simple you know, control systems linear, probably. Um, but, um, but of course, we can do better than that. You know, we could, you know, in principle, we can use sensors and actuators. And in between those, we can put a chip. Um, and now you can, of course, have very small um, computer systems, very low energy systems, um, like the Raspberry systems, others like this. Um, and you can put on that system an artificial neural network that, you know, captures some of the intelligence or the features of our neurons in our brain. Um, in their in their algorithms, and so now you can have um, a system that has you know, built-in um, algorithms that can learn um, and adapt and, and evolve, you know, as a as a species, if you wish. Um, whether they can replicate or not, that's a separate question. But you can kind of set them out there in the world, and so that's that's sort of the lowest level of intelligence. I think we can we can already do that today, and I'm sure people are doing this all over the world and trying to push that forward. But 
Um, I think the next next iteration is probably going to be where, and this is much further ahead, I think, um, but is where we actually create materials that have neurons built in. And there might be actual neurons, like the ones we have in our, in our brains and nervous systems, but might also be artificial neurons or, or maybe material constructs that act like neurons. They're completely synthetic, um, but they can actually mimic in hardware, essentially, um, it, might, it might be a computer chip that, that is essentially a, a programmed version of some computer algorithm, but that doesn't work on the traditional uh, way of writing assembly code, um, but, but that actually you know, is a physical representation of the cells in our brain. And, um, and I think when we do that, um, we're going to be able to save some energy, most likely save some space, um, and maybe make things more efficient. So that is a direction I think that might be really interesting to um, not only for robot or soft robotics, but you know, in general, build in more intelligence and materials by yeah. with some of the feedback mechanisms. Yeah. So, so yeah, instead of having a linear or nonlinear um, uh, control system, uh, you can build a neural network, literally a neural network, um, synthetically in in your system, um, and have it learn, have it experience, and have it become conscious of the environment and maybe even conscious of itself too. To, to understand what it's doing and interact with others. So, so this might be a very exciting direction for materials. I like to build um, one day materials like this in my, in my group here at MIT or work with others that can do that better perhaps, but, but I think that's a very exciting direction. Yeah. I'd like to just do the last point. It's very interesting about how you can build this neural net, for example, using the kind of material we have already in our research. What kind of optimal material do you think we have to have? Or maybe seeing this limitation, you can go for what you have. You know? Yeah, so I think right now, the one of the limitations, um, and I'm probably speaking a little bit out of my expertise here, to be honest, but um, but one of, one of the limitations, of course, is that the silicon-based technologies are, are you know, maybe not compatible in terms of the stiffness simply with the, the kinds of structures we have, in, especially in soft materials or in, you know, soft robotics, but broadly, I think, in biological systems. You know, our brain isn't, uh, isn't a silicon chip, right? It's very soft and malleable, and it's changeable, it's plastic, literally yeah. and figuratively. Um, so, so I think those designs that we have right now in our computer chips are, are going to be there for a long time, maybe for, you know, for, yeah, for a long time, let's say that. Um, but, but I think there's going to be a new type of computer architecture that uh, neuromorphic designs, for instance, that are going to be uh, based on maybe not silicon technology, but perhaps based on other chemical processes. It doesn't mean they're real living cells, as I mentioned, but they could be. Um, but it could be synthetic cells or it could be... Um, uh, some some hydrogels that have some ability to compute algorithms that can learn, form connections between neurons, and essentially mirror some of those hardware. You know, right now we're coding them in a computer code, mm-hmm. TensorFlow or PyTorch, things like this. Um, yeah. But I could imagine we're going to actually code them, hardware code them in a material itself, um, and and the whole material becomes intelligent that way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think your question is, what do we need for that? We, yeah, we're definitely going to need to push the invention, the innovation in materials themselves for that. I mean, we yeah. might not have all the materials today that we need to actually make that a reality. Um, clearly, there's a lot of room for future developments. I think right now we're just scratching the surface by creating responsive materials and being able to tune them and have them interact with us. But um, there's a lot of room for these kind of um, artificial neurons to be to be created in, in, a, in a sort of material platform. Yeah. That's a good point. But I'm curious, you from you have like a proud look, for example, in the field. What do you think, maybe area direction, we have to give more attention to to the research? Do you think if application, for example, we have challenges, or what other area that having the material that we have resilience or redundancy, which is any kind of, yeah, damage is happening for them? Yeah. So I think the um, future of this field, especially when you're when you think about deploying it, and and let's say in medicine, or you're deploying it in um, you know, pretty much any any real world environment, you're gonna have to have the function, right? You're gonna have to have the actual robotic function you want, but you also need the resilience. You alluded to that a little bit. Um, you know, when you when you put something in your body, it's gonna be exposed to mechanical deformation. Um, you're gonna put it into your organ, or you put it out in the world as an energy harvesting device, or you put it in the ocean for exploration. Um, it's gonna be exposed to a lot of extreme conditions. You know, forces, stresses, corrosion. So I, I think the, the community is going to, and we're doing this already to some extent today, of course, but I think we're all going to have to, especially as academics, I would say, to be aware of the, the real world deployment of these systems and that, you know, in a laboratory, we have a very, very a perfect environment a lot of times. 
And once you put it out there, the uh, the perfect environment might not be there, and we're going to have to deal with a lot of um, you know really intense environments. Um, and and so the design is going to have to be multi-dimensional, not only for the function um, and creating something perfect for the lab or for a demonstration, but it's going to have to satisfy multiple um, multiple realities, including of course when we're talking about the human body. I work a lot with biomaterials. Um, is the ability to interface well with our own body. We don't want to have something like an like a reaction of a foreign to a foreign object, allergic reactions, or um, that the body would reject the object. We want to make sure that our body actually integrates well with whatever we're using as a, as an implant or as a as a biomaterial. And uh, that same goes for the environment. So when you think about creating, you know, robotic devices or, or materials, then you put them out in nature. Um, what we don't want to create is something like a future environmental disaster where um, we created these amazing nanomaterials and we created, um, you know, robots that can pollinate trees because we don't have bees anymore. But then it turns out that these robots we have created actually are toxic for um, the environment and, and, and lead to sort of sudden disasters in, um, in the ecosystem down the road. So those are things I think that call upon all the engineers to think broadly, right? So not only about one function, but to think you know, broadly about different functions and also think about the ethics. I mean, there's a lot of discussion everywhere about ethics, yeah. you know, rightfully so, because engineers are affecting um, bodies, our own bodies, societies, they're affecting um, generations in the future, affecting the environment, they're affecting things that can't talk, you know, um, like the environment, a lot of times they don't, they can't defend themselves necessarily very easily. So, these ethical consideration, um, humanitarian perspectives are really important. And I think for clearly for all of us as engineers, we, we're going to, especially as educators, we train our students to think um, in all these dimensions um, and that we have this responsibility uh, to the world broadly. And so it requires, yeah, you know, maybe a new, a new type of engineer. And I think we, I honestly think that today's students are very attuned with a lot of these questions already. They, they grew up in a world where they are thinking about multiple dimensions. But yeah, it was very different a long time ago. Of course, we weren't trained like this. There were different schools. And I, I want to mention also, you know, at MIT, we have um, um, requirements that many, all the students have to take a significant amount of humanities classes. So even at a place like MIT, where we have a very, very strong technical focus, we have um, pretty strict requirements for humanities classes. And I think that's terrific because it, it teaches students to think outside of just the engineering and science, but to think about the broader implications for society. So this is probably only going to grow in the, in the years to come. Yeah, that's very interesting. I would like to ask, because what you mentioned is very interesting about how we can design this kind of intelligence and similar to what we have in Norris. But when it comes to embodied intelligence and how we can have this kind of intelligence embedded in all materials, how do you see the relation of morphological computation and the morphology and geometry? And combining this different material, right. what's the correlation mm. here, or maybe the most important thing do you think that affecting to achieve this kind of intelligence? Yeah, no, this is a great question. I um, I'm, I, I don't think my answer is very extremely well informed, obviously, because I'm not. I, I work mainly on the materials aspect. I don't build devices in my own lab, but but from what I know, um, or from my own my own limited perspective, I would say is that. You know, one of the things you can do when you have distributed computing, um, you save space and weight and you can make systems more efficient, right? So instead of having, a, a, you know, wires running from, a, from the legs of, a, of an artificial, you know, insect or something, um, if you could put the computing right into the muscles or the actuators or the sensors, uh, you're going to save time, you know, the processing time is going to be faster and um, you don't need the wires, you save weight. And so you can build the devices smaller, more efficient, and that's what nature does all the time. So I think that's one advantage. Um, and the other one is, of course, that the um, the computing becomes part of the material and it can learn, it can adapt. And so you can have systems that can learn and they can learn autonomously. So I would like to see material systems or robotic systems that are um, intelligent in that they begin by knowing very little, um, bringing their life, if you wish, um, and they grow and they learn and they become better and better. And perhaps they can pass on this learning into the next generation. We can do transfer learning from one generation of, of robots to another one. But um, that is, I think, something extremely powerful to think about. And, and the, uh, the human intervention becomes secondary because the systems will train themselves. And uh, we as humans observe it, we direct it, but we're no longer um, 
you know, micromanaging every single training step because the neurons will connect themselves and organize themselves in the way that they become uh, the most efficient for the purpose at hand. And we just basically say, I want a system that can balance itself, that can, you know, maybe 3D print in space, that can um, deposit materials, sense materials, sense damage, but we don't really worry too much about how these mechanisms are learned um, and the system operates on its own and optimizes and perfects itself. And, uh, you know, that, I think that would be a really interesting, I, I'm always a little bit, I've, I've learned over the years that, um, you know, especially working with nature, um, there are so many wonders in nature that um, we're always amazed by, you know, as humans, we look at the world and we think we are kind of the, the centerpiece of everything and, and we're probably not. And um, and so we, we, we arrive at these behaviors that we see in nature with, with, with awe, you know, with wonder. Um, and that's fine and it's great, you know, we, we should do that. But I think as engineers, it's interesting to take a perspective where we uh, do not want to be the ones actually designing every single piece of the circuit that let um, the, the system autonomously grow that and, and determine it on its own. I think that's following a little bit more of evolutionary principle and how we all evolved, our bodies evolved. You know, we don't know how we function fully in our bodies, right? And, and so um, by taking the perspective that we know everything and kind of derive everything from equations we've discovered, um, you know, might, be, might, might not be the, um, might be limiting in some ways because we're limiting the perspective what we can see. Um, so, so letting letting um, kind of the systems discover their own laws and, and, and rules and, and intelligence uh, might lead us to some surprises. Just like when you watch, you know, butterflies, let's say, or migrations of birds, and you're amazed by how they find their way back and find their way around. Well, uh, you know, there are things at play that we don't understand yet. And you know, maybe in a couple of years, decades, maybe hundred years, I don't know. We're going to figure out how this all works, and we're going to say, well, this is how it actually works. Right now, we don't know, and we we have this you know inspirational awe about this. Um, but yeah, I think I think there's a lot of opportunities once we let kind of nature take its course, and we we let these systems learn on their own. So that's something I'm passionate about to explore. If, yeah. if that's very interesting. When you say that they grow autonomously, can you give for sure? Maybe curious. Uh, concrete examples. Do you think that? When we look to the nature, that's something. Uh, how it's happening, we don't know. With how it's I don't know if you can elaborate more about that, push a little on that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think in um, there's a lot of processes. Um, you know, you can pick pretty much any anything like spider silk as an example, where we we're not really sure exactly how um, the spider is able to create the, the, the silk. Really, I mean, we can mimic it in the lab to some extent. We don't know exactly how it works, and you know, a lot of times the silk we make is not of the same quality or not at the same level as the kind of materials that nature has created um, all the time. So obviously that shows that there are some things going on in the spider's um, body organism that we don't understand. And it, it might be you know, chemical substances we're not paying attention to. It could be processing steps. Um, so there's a lot of systems like this where um, we, we kind of know what's coming at the end, you know, what the material is that nature has created, but we don't know how it's actually done. I'm, I actually talked about this at the very beginning when you asked me about you know, the challenges and I mentioned, well, we know about what proteins are in there, but we don't know how they actually put together, right? And, and how the molecules come together to form things. That is all over nature. And I, I think the, the materials community um, has just yeah, enormous opportunities to, to study those, of course. But also sometimes, um, you know, we could let nature, we could use what nature has already created um, as a way of, of building on that. And uh, in my own work, I've done this a lot where we use silk and other materials. And instead of going all the way to the drawing board and kind of like replicating everything in the lab, we can utilize materials that nature has already made um, and use their nanostructures, which are uh, oftentimes intri intricately created. Like in, in silk, we have you know, really amazing nanostructures that are very hard for us to make, very expensive, even if we can make it. Um, but silkworms make them all the time um, and make them very reliably, very efficiently and in inexpensively. So if we're able to utilize those nanostructures and just reassemble them into new forms, new shapes, uh, we can create really amazing materials. And so, so kind of working with these natural designs is something that um, could be very interesting as well. So, so we don't necessarily have to understand um, everything, but we have to know where the understanding ends, of course. So we can, you know, as engineers, we can be smart and, and understand, you know, that's where we're going to rely on nature. And this is where we're going to do the engineering part and kind of divide that up in that way. Interesting, yeah. Now, I'm also curious, again, to ask you about uh, limitation or maybe challenges in software robotics when it comes to large deformation. We have... That mm. when it, 
simulation for large information is really challenging. All of the material is highly nonlinear and sometimes viscoelastic. So how do you see this kind of, yeah, these features already? How we, first question is, because you mentioned the control, do you think that because we can use, for example, geometric nonlinearities and the material nonlinearities to replace the controller so that we can have intrinsic features? Exactly, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, so you, you mentioned a, a lot of really interesting points. So, I mean, answering the last point you made exactly, I think that in, instead of building a material model fully, you know, and then maybe with limitations, but very expensive and maybe doesn't even work because, you know, there's limitations that we cannot overcome yet or the simulations are very slow. Yeah, uh, you know, built-in control mechanisms is, is a very powerful way. And that's that's how nature works. You know, our brains, um, you know, when we uh, use our fingers to write or, or you know, play piano or write on a keyboard or, or you know build something um, um, you know we we don't necessarily know the considerative law of what we're building right um, we have a, a you know control mechanism building that that you know and actually I, I talk about I have a slide in my in the talks I give uh, one of the slides I have this picture where I show the creation of stuff and I you know I show a spider creating a spider web and I show humans doing um, you know paintings in a cave thousands of years ago um, or, or, or building things with your hands. I mean, today we're not making cave drawings anymore as much, but we maybe we're building computer chips, we're building robotics, robots and things. But we always have this feedback loop. And, and I think that um, with AI um, in a similar way, yeah, we don't need to know, um, you know, have a model of everything. We can use that, that iterative process and let the neurons understand, learn the relationship between, you know, how we cut the knife or how we put the brush or how, what kind of notes we play on a piano and learn from experience. and. That, that is a different way of, of building models. And I think that um, it's not a lesser way, it's, it's a different way. And I, and I always also talk about this in my, in my lectures and when I also teach students here at MIT that, um, you know, these are complementary methods. We're not, we're not giving up on one or the other. Um, you know, we need physics-based models and models of large definitions and nonlinear models, we need that. Um, but in some cases, exactly like you suggested, um, if we can work with data, and, and build models based on observations um, that can be predictive. That can be a complementary way to do multi-scaling, for instance, or develop a control algorithm. Like that's the, the point you made. Um, and I think these are all, um, we should open our minds to these because um, when we want to win in the challenges of the future and building these complex systems, integrated systems, um, we're going to need to rethink some of the paradigms that we've used so far, which I think are, yes, they're good and they have served as well, but, um, but some of them are very, uh, clumsy, right? So I always use another example I have in my in my talks is I, I show Newton's laws and I show how, of course, Newton discovered presumably the Newton law, Newton's laws by, you know, the apple falling from the tree. And then, you know, the, the scientists would write down the observations. And there's other, many other examples, of course, in the history of science where observations are made and then ultimately mathematics came to play. And, you know, we, we wrote down the equation and we discovered a fundamental equation that, that describes a lot of these phenomena quite well, or maybe perfectly or to some extent um, and and then we then we have computers now that allowed us to solve these equations right and we basically program computers to solve these equations now if you kind of want I'm, sometimes I like to be a little provocative in this and say well you know why do we need the equation I mean yes we need them sometimes I'm not saying we don't need them but but you know some systems that are very complex especially biological systems um, you know we could also um, you know farm out the observation of data to the computer and that computers figure out relationships between variables um, using AI. And, and we've done this in our own work quite successfully, I think, in, in some cases where we, we do no longer need um, to go that very complicated way of coding, the, uh, coding Newton's laws and, and solving equations in finite element or methods like this, um, but actually can go directly from an observation to a prediction and, and can generalize these predictions. Now, that's where interpretive machine learning is becoming increasingly important because if you just have that model, um, you can use it, but you don't really understand it. And so what I'm, what I'm very excited about is to do a couple of things. One is to relate these observations or these predictions to existing theories. That's, that's something you can already do. Um, and also to, uh, to look inside the neural networks to see how do they function. And I think perhaps our community of mechanicians and, and engineers and general material scientists, we're, we're going to be in for some really interesting surprises in understanding how a computer algorithm, a neural network, an artificial neural network 
can learn relationships between entities, structures, microstructures, processes, and might learn these relationships in a very different way than we had thought. And, and this might lead us to ultimately develop better equations. Right? So that's sort of how I look at it. I, I think that it's always nice to have an equation, um, but maybe uh, you know, looking inside a neural net allows us to understand some of the patterns and how we should look at the problem, um, which is quite different from a human imagination. And I, I think, again, I, I'm, as I worked a lot with spiders recently uh, and with many other kind of organisms in nature, I, 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 you really begin to really appreciate that the human perspective is just one out of many, right? And then so we we are, um, um, you know, quite quite um, quite. Um, I wouldn't say arrogant, but I think we 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 put our own perspective a lot of times in the central uh, in a central discussion. But there are many things in, in in the world that we might we might appreciate as humans and learn if we take a little different perspective. And so these material phenomena you were talking about are one of those as well. You know, when you when you have an AI algorithm maybe take a look at it from a different perspective and relating the variables to one another, uh, we can then take that perspective and then maybe develop an, a model, an equation or a mechanistic description um, that we would have never come up with right? uh, because we have a, a very specific way of thinking as humans. We think in geometry, uh, you know, in time and space, um, but um, a lot of these processes relate uh, not necessarily in, in physical proximity, especially when we go to quantum mechanics, since I work a lot with quantum chemistry and molecular structures. Um, some of those relationships really are not obvious, right? So when you uh, when you are you know when you kind of take yourself out of the equation a little bit and uh, literally take yourself out of this and, and let a, a machine kind of just take a fresh perspective on it, um, there's some really interesting relationships you can learn and that can form and form us and. Uh, might really push us forward and where we can go as civilization down the road. Mm. That's a very interesting point. Thanks so much for sharing them. And I'm curious to ask you about a, maybe challenging of technological blocks, do you think, within your lab research? What could be the challenging? Or maybe also aspiration. You mentioned already what could be aspiration. Maybe current technological blocks do you, do you, do you have? Yeah, I mean, right now, I, I guess the, um, in a sense, I work a lot with computation. And uh, clearly, um, even though we have faster computers, we have GPUs, we have paralyzed supercomputers and stuff like this. Um, computers are still very slow. And, um, you know, there's sort of this exponential process where you you set up a problem, a problem, and you, you, you've, you know, you fit the considerable law, or you, you set up a molecular simulation of a protein, um, and it works perfectly fine. You can run the simulation in a few days, and then you, then you want to scale it up right, to the real, real dimensions or maybe the you know the the full sequence length and you very quickly realize that you know computing is still very limited right so that's one thing of course we so we really we're going to need to push computational methods and and not only software but also hardware uh, and quantum computing is one area i'm very excited about because it allows us to uh, you know solve problems it's kind of like the the neuromorphic aspect that i mentioned earlier about using neural nets as a way of identifying relationships um, uh, quantum computing is another way to kind of go away from the traditional silicon-based, um, bit-based computing. And it's something that um, takes a new form and shape. And um, so we can push that forward and maybe find better ways of solving equations that way more quickly. Um, so those kind of resources. The other thing, of course, is the um, you know, data. I think one of the, all of us that work with data, you know, we quickly realize that um, if you work with um, um, you know, especially video data, or image data, or time series data, which I think all of us do because that's what the physics relates structures and time. Um, you know, there are um, huge amounts of data that we're dealing with, and and I think that's a um, practical challenge really for all of us to be able to manage this data, and especially now with cloud computing. Um, you know, a lot of times it's not easy to move things on, onto the cloud or onto a server and then move it yeah. back. The assets might be very big. Um, and then when you do experimental imaging, now you can image with higher and higher resolution, both in time, temporally, and also spatially. So yeah, your data sets become bigger and bigger. Yes, you have neural network models that can deal with the data, but the bigger the data set, again, exponentially, you're going to grow your compute time. So there's big challenge there. Um, but, I mean, you know, it's exciting. I've, when I, I did my PhD in, you know, starting uh, 2001, I think, yeah, or 2001, uh, almost 20 years ago, about 20 years ago when I started. And, um, you know, at that time, the, the supercomputer I was I was lucky enough to use, um, I probably have that now in my laptop and my GPU, right? So, so, so things have changed a lot and we can do really amazing things. 
Um, and that's one thing also I want to share, perhaps with the you know the, the students and the younger generation coming coming online. I mean, you know, uh, compute power isn't the only thing. You really also want to think very very hard about what are you actually doing, right? How do you how do you use the resources? It's it's kind of tempting to throw a big computer at a problem, and um, you know it, it 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 might not give you the right insight. So a lot of times I, I always tell my students we always have discussions in the group a lot about how do we actually choose the right problem, the right question? And this is still important today, right? So yeah, you know, computing is still limited to some extent, but we are, have gone a long way already. But let's not forget that we also have to find the right problem formulation too. Um, it's the same in experimental, in experimental work as well, right? Um, and I think the other thing that I, I would always I want to mention, maybe the third thing in my own work is I do some experimental work now also in, in my group. And um, different things uh, from 3D printing to um, some biomass to, um, of course, some work on spiders and spider web living organisms. But there's a real, um, real difference, you know, when you have an experiment you need to run with an actual thing that's a real physical object. And um, for me, coming from theory um, and coming from, from my own PhD, coming from theory and simulation, um, it was exciting, but also eye-opening, really, um, to see what can go wrong. You know, just being able to run an experiment, um, it might take a long time just because, you know, the spider might not be willing to build a web. Or um, you have a, an issue with the camera or the, the laser or <clears throat> the control system. It might be a lot of practical challenges. And I think, yeah, a lot of times we overlook these, you know, when you give a talk, uh, you know, and the same is true for computation. You, you present your, your work and you show this is the amazing data I got or the amazing model I've built. Um, and, and I think for a lot of, especially PhD students, or undergrads or postdocs that are going on, you know, come on through the, through the years, um, they're also really interested in seeing the failures and the frustrations. And so I like these tutorial type <clears throat> events that a lot of conferences have now, but um, I think we also should have maybe um, more of the journal articles to talk about tutorials and, and how to actually do things um, and to, to mention the things that aren't actually um, written about in papers, like you have to learn them as a um, kind of as a trade in your lab. You <clears throat> know, how do you work with cells? How do you work with spiders? And these are standard protocols, perhaps, but um, they're not written down necessarily. So there's, I think there's a lot of practical things that um, can really limit you and, um, you know, and, and just take a lot of time, physical time for you that for a student or for you as a researcher to go into. So, so we should keep those in mind as well and, um, and appreciate those. So the, yeah. talking about the failures this is maybe one of the, one of the. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask again about the computations. There's two parts. You mentioned about that maybe yeah, if we have maybe simpler equation or maybe that's because we have Professor Donald Hoffman and the podcast and he said that space and time is doomed. And maybe if we consider something beyond the space and time, we could have similar equation. Right. Don't have this Do you have any comments about that, or does it make sense to you uh, for your work? I don't know if that. Well, so I, um, I'm to be very honest. I, I, I know a tiny bit about it, but not too much. So I'm not. I, I really can't give you um, a very qualified answer, other than um, generically, I, I would wholeheartedly agree. I think we, we always, as scientists, should always push beyond the, the, the current state of the art, right? So, and, you know, questioning uh, established knowledge is our job. You know, we shouldn't just, um, you know, build on, on what's already known and make incremental advances. We should, you know, maybe take uh, radically different points of view sometimes or try methods that um, are not accepted in the scientific community right now and see how we can apply them. And, um, you know, I work a lot with at the interface between art and science, and I, and I find that very interesting and very rewarding, but also a very powerful tool to advance scientific inquiry um, through, the, through the use of the creative part of our brain, essentially. So those are things I'm very sympathetic to. And, um, and I think history is a great teacher for many things. Um, including science, and if you if one studies the history of science, of course, you can always see that, yeah, some of the biggest advances came from you know folks that came and and have sort of challenged the way people thought at the time, and many times they were outcast at the time, and and I think we should we should learn from this to be to embrace um, new kind of thinking, uh, and I think our community um uh, can should embrace that i think we should make an active effort to embrace you know unconventional uh, i'm not saying we don't do that but i but i would i would say that we should teach our students actually and our, and our postdocs and our future generations 
to uh, to embrace these things. And if they do come across something that they believe in or they, they want to explore, um, to go in that direction. And we should provide resources to everyone who wants to do that because that's the only way we're going to push forward, right? You know, if we all um, think alike and we all um, just built on each other's so like an echo chamber, um, that's not going to help us. We need um, intellectual um, diversity and exploring, you know, entirely new um, new ways of, of thinking about the world. So, so coming back to your question, I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think... Um, whoever is working on this, um, you know, great. I, and I would, I would like to learn more about it, of course. And I think we should, we should, we should, we should be inquisitive, and we should encourage this kind of thinking for sure. Yeah, I'm curious to ask you, BB, because we close the end and half. I think the question, because you're working in different scale, continuum scale to nano and micro scale. Mm -hmm. When it comes to computation simulation, we have here, for example, uh, for molecular dynamic simulation, and we have the continuum scale. If you can't foresee listening to you, what could be, because we have this gap, simulation to reality gap, and we have challenges mm -hmm. in linear material, et cetera. It's, it's a challenge sometimes. So when it comes to the molecular dynamic simulation vs. continuum simulation, what could be inside this could be give you much better in which is key? Yeah, no, I think I think one one misconception perhaps that a lot of times we um, you know we have and yeah. In all of us is that we we think that a model could be um, could perfectly describe um, every single detail of a, of a real material, let's say, and maybe every prediction. You know, it might happen sometimes. Okay, might, but but to me, the, the real value of computation is is really in probing things we cannot see. Uh, and so, molecular simulation for me is something that is very very exciting to me because. Um, I work on fracture and folding of proteins and, and unfolding and all sorts of things that you can't really see. Like you can, um, you can indirectly observe them and things have broken, but um, you can't really see the dynamics, what's going on. Even with microscopes, they're hard to see inside a material. Other than 2D materials, perhaps, it's very difficult to see the atomic motion inside. So MD, mechanics allows us to do that. So we can see mechanisms there. And I think... Uh, you know, to, uh, to think that you can suddenly bridge all the scales and predict precisely, you know, your fracture toughness of a, a real piece of composite or, or chalk or polymer, um, you know, that's going to be very challenging. And actually, I would even challenge us to think maybe not even necessary, right? Because um, if we can measure it, that's great. But what we can learn from simulation is something else. It's about what is going on mechanistically. And so I always, I always am a big believer. I'm a big believer of this idea of complementarity and uh, not a single method is going to solve all the problems. And, um, and if you can do something in a computation, um, you shouldn't replicate things exactly you can do in an experiment. You can validate your model, of course, and we should all do this, but um, there are certain strengths of methods uh, and we should embrace them and we should point them out and we should use the methods in that way. So, uh, so molecular dynamics and multi-scaling is um, you know, interesting, but it, it always needs the context of what we're doing and we need to be able to um, appreciate and embrace the challenges and the limitations. And <clears throat> this is sometimes, a lot of times we, when you go to a conference and you have simulation people talking to each other and they show their latest models, um, they all know the limitations and, you know, they know what they're doing, but then you have this experimental person in the room and, you know, that individual is going to point out all the flaws of the model or maybe walk out of the room and think these models are no good. Um, so I think that there has to be um, a communication. And I, I do in my own work, uh, pay a lot of attention to working with experimentalists. Um, and I, I do this in pretty much all the work I do, either it's our own experiments or working with other labs, um, because it keeps you grounded, first of all and allows you to take the best of, of all the worlds and combining them um, and to validate your models and understand the limitations of what the model can do versus the experiment. So I, I would in, encourage everyone to, to think a lot more about um, going outside of your own community and, and kind of yeah, talk to the experimental community, make that your challenge, you know, write a grant with somebody who does experiments or the other way around, um, because that's really the only way how you can uh, really begin to communicate at a, at a technical level. And I think communicating across paper writing is very slow, but right? it's, and there's a lot of room for misinterpretation. If you are an experimentalist and you read a paper from a simulation group or the other way around, you know, you read a paper from a, an experimental group and they measure something and you validate your model against as well. Um, there might be things in there that you don't, you're not aware of, right? Um, uncertainties or, or maybe different scales, scale effects. So I learned that the best way or most exciting, intellectually exciting way is to actually work with these 
these experimentalists in my case, um, sit on the same table. I have a very close collaboration with David Kaplan at Tufts University, which is a couple of miles from MIT, and we, we share students and postdocs. And I think they gain an experience in, especially in protein design, protein folding, and protein synthesis, uh, and measuring measuring and living systems like uh, very few people do because um, they can see all the different aspects of this work uh, with their own eyes and they can go to the lab and see how it's done. Uh, and I think that's something I like to sort of encourage everyone to do, um, to spend time, you know, if you're a professor, you can go on sabbatical maybe and spend a little bit of time on, um, you know, in an experimental lab or, or spend some time in a, in a totally different field. I, I, I work with so many different communities, uh, not, not enough, I should say, but I would like to do more, but, but I, I try to push myself to, um, to talk to a lot of different people and a lot of different communities. And I, and it's incredible how much you miss, you know, if you're just within your own little group, um, you know, you can be in this community of a few, maybe dozens or even hundred researchers, fine, but um, it's an echo chamber to some extent. So it's really good to get out there. You know, go to, you know, right now we have virtual conferences, which is actually in some ways it's easier to talk, to listen to a lot of different talks. Uh, the, the big disadvantage, of course, is that you don't really get to talk to anyone individually. And that's that's a big drawback. But but let's say you go to conferences, virtual or in person, um, and you listen to other talks. I, I would always encourage everyone to take the time to do that. I uh, And I always have to remind myself to do that. And that's hard because everyone's busy and you have schedules and grant writing and paper reviews and all sorts of stuff. But it's important to take the time to um, to go to other communities, to talk to other scientists, to talk to artists, to talk to people that are, are intellectual um, leaders but aren't in your community and to try to understand what they do. Um, and the other thing that I always uh, tell my students and everyone, all my colleagues um, and, and everyone I kind of think that's important now is to take time to think. You know, we're living in this world of um, instant gratification and the social media clearly, you know, hasn't helped, you know, people like to post and I, I tweet a lot too myself I it's a it's an effective way of communicating science but um, it is sort of a, a world in which we we want to get a paper published and everyone wants the highest impact factor and everyone wants the most citations and um, you know to take the time to, uh, to publish really in the right journal um, to publish the right kind of questions and not to worry too much about the impact factor sometimes or uh, to think about the audience you really want to reach and the science you really want to do um, and to take that step back to think, you know, the, you know, putting time in your calendar to say, okay, I'm going to spend the next couple of days or weeks, hours to just think and be creative and explore where my thought might take me. And um, yeah, we, we, uh, the, the time has become, the, the life has become very hectic. Um, and um, yeah, Zoom clearly is helping. Now you connected anywhere you go, you have emails, Twitter, <laughs> Facebook, or whatnot, what you use. Uh, and so, so there's a constant influx of ideas and information and, and you want to participate in the discussion, you feel like you need to be there. Uh, but it takes a little bit of time away as a scholar that I think many of, many of us look back, um, we haven't lived in this world, but you know, 100 years ago, scientists used to write letters, right? And, um, and they, they wrote down thoughts, they had to wait for a few weeks until they got a response. There was no, no angry tweet that people would send, no, no upset, you know, they, they kind of had more time to reflect. And I, and I think as a scholar, that is really important. Take the time to think uh, and take the time to kind of maybe sometimes people want to take a walk in nature some others want to just sit in the office or you know lie in bed and close their eyes i don't know whatever works for you but um you know time to think i think is something else that i would say is a big challenge for us now it's it's you know kind of thinking about how do we do science and and how can we make sure it's effective um we, we're going to have to remind ourselves that we shouldn't lose sight of that that ultimate goal that's really wonderful and powerful words. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think the very inspiring for students as well and junior researchers. Uh, and I'm curious about what could be, uh, I, I would like to ask you about the ego, but I think you don't have this kind of ego. If you say that, I don't believe that you have an ego. <laughs> I don't know if you have ego when it comes to new ideas, level of ego. What's the relationship with your ego? E ego? Yeah. Oh well, so you know, I, I I think science is is meant to be shared, and uh, you know, I think that I always um, I always have these discussions with students. Uh, you know, sometimes you have a great idea, and you know, you publish a paper, um, and then somebody else picks up on this, and then they write the paper, and you know, and that's great actually. Sometimes people copy you. You know, you go to a conference, and they and that's, it can be upsetting if sometimes they don't cite you okay that's very upsetting and ethically wrong um but um but hey you know at the end of the day i think that um 
you know, scientists, we, we, we all have to, we're giving to the world, um, you know, the gift of knowledge. And we also benefit from all the various knowledge streams and ideas. Um, we're a medium to do that. Um, so I, I don't think we, we should have an ego, but I think it is important to be acknowledged appropriately. I think that's really important. But yeah, it is uh, sometimes for um, young researchers, it is, um, it, there is definitely some competitiveness out there, right? So if you work in a, in a field that's very competitive, like right now, um, AI machine learning is is a field that's very competitive. And, you know, in that field, um, a lot of this is going to be about the best ideas and how to formulate the problem. And many people can actually solve the problem with the tools around, but it depends on how do you frame it. And so it is very, it's very competitive and, and, and potentially stressful for, you know, students and also um, professors in their um, early years, yeah, assistant professors and equivalents of that, um, because you want to make sure for the system that we live in, you know, your job will depend on it. Um, you're going to need to be the one who has published this first. And um, if it was your idea, yeah, you deserve the credit for it. And so you want to be able to to put your name there. I mean, in as much as that's ego, that is important for acknowledgement. But uh, and it can create a lot of uh, tension and stress a lot of times because, um, you know, it's competitive. And, and if you go to a, you talk about something at a conference and somebody picks it up and they develop it in their own lab, maybe more quickly, and they they create this device or they create this algorithm um, and they don't cite you or they they're competing with you. That can be very, very stressful. But at the end of the day, I think, yeah, I think I like to I always like to take a long perspective. And if if your work is being copied, uh, that's a great sign. You're doing something really interesting. Right. So I, I actually see this as a compliment, even though it can hurt if you if you're in a situation where somebody will will copy your work and they, they kind of literally use your ideas maybe apply to a different system, but they kind of really clearly were inspired. It can be upsetting, but I always tell my students if this happens or if, if it happens to me that um, it's, it's actually a big honor to being being copied. You know, uh, so so that. Um, but but there's a there's a sort of more subtle point, and maybe what you're asking is is the way the scientific system um, credits or you know yeah promotes people for jobs or gives people jobs. Um, there's clearly something there that I think we need to pay attention to in that we don't want to become um, point scoring societies of scientists and engineers where, you know, all we do is just count the impact factor and how many papers we have. I think um, I know that a uh, place like MIT, we pay a lot of attention to really digging deep into the work that a scholar does for promotions and hiring. But I also know that um, it's very tempting to take a look at impact factors, you know, and I see this from applications of students that apply for faculty jobs all the time. They they put in, okay, this is my average impact factor, or these are my average, you know, um, um, you know, rankings of the journals. And and actually it doesn't mean anything, right? I mean, it could mean something, it could be an indicator, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, what you really want to look at is what have they actually done? Um, and it doesn't matter whether this was published in journal X or Y or Z, um, as long as it has the impact, the impact is really what I like to look at. And the, the problem with this, of course, is that it's very challenging and very time consuming. So it's, yeah, like I said, it's tempting to, as a, as a hiring person or promotion person to um, look at the numbers, right, and average them out or something. But, um, but I think, you know, I think we should all take the time to, to look very deeply into what the person actually has done and um, what the ideas are and how they created that, especially if you talk about ego, you know, when you're on a, on a paper with many co-authors, you know, you really want to ask the question, you know, and I do this when I hire people at all the time, you know, what was your contribution, right? Yeah, you might be third author, but maybe you've done something really important. Or you might be first author, but maybe you didn't, right? So, so I want to ask the question of what have you done? Who can you identify? Um, it's a little bit different when you're a senior author. A lot of times there are a lot of PIs on there. Um, but if you're a junior person, um, you want to get a job, you want to promote it, promote it. It's really important to understand what are your contributions. And so I always think that um, strategically you want to be in a position as a young person to, uh, as, a, as an, as not young, I mean, we shouldn't use age. I mean, young as a, as a researcher, you know, growing up through the uh, You want to be in a position where you want to articulate a clear line of thinking, a line of methods, and, and you can be your individual as a scientist. And um, that's nothing to do with ego. It's just you, you want to have your brand, right? You want to have your identity and you can say, I am yeah, a multi-scale person. I work on XYZ and 
my niche is to doing this thing very well. And I have applied this to different problems and I have intellectually contributed to all these different papers. And this is how I've done it. You want to be able to tell a story like this, right? So you don't, you don't want to be, you want to be somebody who, yeah, just has a lot of papers and just doesn't really know what you have done. I mean, you want to be able to tell a story. So when I interview for faculty jobs, promotions and we do look at these things um that's what i want to i want to understand and uh, be able to really understand as a as a senior member or as a, as, a, as a person evaluating the case um and so i think it's good actually i, I want to just push everyone to think like this because everything else will potentially lead into um, um a slippery slope where everyone's just inflating their their work into um impact factors and citations and people cite each other and they create these groups and it's it really takes away from the meaning of science which is um you know creating shared knowledge like i i, I began the answer to your question with this and i think that's really important to keep in mind and um, we all have a small role to play in this world, and we should be humble, I think, to, to recognize this. That's very important. I, I can't agree more with you. Thanks so much for highlighting that. But maybe someone could say, because what you say, that's what we need. But in reality, that what doesn't happen. No, exactly. Just, right. <clears throat> yeah, how we can fight that. You mentioned that at MIT, these stress and that, and that's understood. But when it comes to academia market in general, right. and even funding, they request a number of papers. Right. I don't and really I, yeah, right. wait for that. And I, you know, and to be honest, I and exactly, and I, I'm pragmatic. I'm a very pragmatic person, and I also tell my students always that, uh, you know, this is how I think, and that's how I feel. Yeah, and I that. Yeah. But, but you have to play the game somehow, right? You can't <clears throat> if you if you're trying to be. Um, I mean, if you're a senior author, um, you can do it. You know, mm. you can be. You know, you can be a little bit more brutal in your decisions. But um, if you're a junior person and you're trying to get a job, you're totally right. Uh, you got to have to play this this game to some extent, but I I think that being aware of it and and knowing strategically what you want to do and what you don't want to do is really important. Yeah, I, I I agree. But uh, the message to everyone out there, I mean, it's really that you you but yeah. What you say that what we want actually that yeah. we aspire to have it. Exactly, exactly. And exactly. So yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And the last two questions. The first thing I would like to ask you: What could be the most important quality you have gained? through your work in academia and you have to maintain what could be so important quality you have to maintain well i mean i think in in as a sort of general description i would say perseverance is really important as a scientist um in many different ways i think you you're going to encounter um uh, and i mean in the actual technical work but also broadly i mean your life is gonna um you're gonna have challenges along the way and and this could be funding could be job it could be you know, people you work with, um, it could be all sorts of different things, uh, or it could be just the experiment itself. But I think as a scientist, you want to be, you want to take a long perspective, right? So, um, you know, things I always, I always have learned that I, I want to work on multiple things at the same time, because um, I, you know, sometimes a project might not progress, and that's fine, you're gonna put it aside, you know, don't, um, you know, just, just let it sit there. And I, I do this all the time and I realize, you know, a few weeks later I come back or maybe sometimes a year later and I act like, wow, this is how I can actually advance this project now. But you just have to be able to do that. And I think that's important. I think a lot of this is about time management and being able to multitask and kind of have, um, yeah, put things in your calendar. That's what I do. I put things in my calendar and I say, this is the time to, to think this is the time to do X, Y, Z, and I, I'm going to have different, um, I write it down and I, I try to explore uh, just different things. <clears throat> I think that's something I learned is is important for you in your daily successes or in your career successes that you're able to kind of, um, yeah, just, just blend out certain things, things that are difficult and just let them sit for a while and, and then come back to it later. I think that's that's something I've learned and yeah, applies to all things in life, of course, but, as, but especially science. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And lastly, maybe what's the best advice was given to you and uh, was the life changing? The best advice was given to you. Well, so <clears throat> I want to say that the um, the biggest um, I, I'm not say advice, but um, <clears throat> excuse me, what I what I had experienced as a PhD student was quite quite interesting. And my advisor basically, um, you know, gave me a, a lot of opportunities to explore, and um, he was a great guide for me, and he, he helped me in all sorts of different things. But he also, you know, challenged me to say, well, you're going to have to become an expert in whatever you pick and whatever direction you're going to go into deeply. Um, and, and I think this um, responsibility that came with that and the expectation that you're going to be 
um, the one really driving this project or these projects you're going to work on. And um, I'm going to help you and I'm going to give you the framework, but you're going to be as a PhD student you know, in that in that field on your own and, and you're going to be able to become the expert and the leader in the field. You're going to be the, the top of that community and you're going to become um, the, the, the technical intellectual leader. Um, that was very empowering, actually. And I think that I, I always try to, you know, give this opportunity to my students. Uh, not everyone wants that. Maybe some people want different things. But, but it was very interesting for me to have that responsibility and opportunity. But it's really important to also have the nurturing, right? So, so you can't just tell someone, just do it on your own. I mean, you have to have the right community. You have to have collaborations. You have to have training. You have to have the right resources and all these things and the right people to talk to. But... But I think that's probably the most life-changing experience I've had is that, um, you know, being, being able to just, you know, explore and, and find, to my, find for myself what I'm really passionate about. And it was, uh, you know, an incredible journey that I had. And, and I, I, I'm thankful for the advisors I had. And I've learned a lot. And then when you go along in your career, you know, you, you're going to find um, uh, a lot of different people, like different styles of advising. You're going to have different bosses. I, I, you know, I've worked with a lot of different people in my, in my career. And um, so far, yeah, there's going to be more, I, I hope. But, um, but yeah, I, I've tried to learn from everyone. You know, you're going to find some things that are difficult in relationships. So you're going to find some things that you would do differently. That's fine. Um, but always there are things you can learn from everyone. And, and I've always tried to keep that as well. So, you know, look at the things you can learn from talking to people and, and maybe look at other other professors or other researchers or maybe other communities, like I mentioned, and, and you know, be an active student of these, um, these traits, right? So don't just, you know, um, um, blend them out or, or ignore them, but, but kind of like take, a, take note of them and, and try to form your own identity and, and how you want to be and how you want to be as an advisor. Once you become an advisor, you're going to be a role model for students and, and you want to teach uh, those things. And, and, you know, they're going to pick up from you whatever they want and they're going to move on and do their own things. But, yeah, so I think it's important to keep that perspective. Absolutely. That's very, very, very powerful advice. Thanks so much, Professor Marcus. It's really inspiring and very interesting work you're sharing with us. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say, if you would like to say any final words. No, I want to just thank you for, for doing this. I think it's a really great initiative. And, um, <clears throat> I mean, you know, having um, discussions of science outside of the format of just a conference you know in a podcast or in a you know kind of discussion like this i think it's really incredibly important i i especially right now where we don't have the personal relationships you know meeting in the hallway basically as, as much right now i don't know um, how it is in paris but probably the same i think you know here um well on zoom all the time and and so we're missing a little bit like the personal interactions and the these kind of casual conversations so that's really important but yeah i think it's great what you're doing and i commend you for doing this i think it's going to be a great record for, for many you appreciate your time and yeah it's such an honor to have you thank you thank, thank you, you so much